we've already begun to see special interests mobilizing against change. And that's not surprising. That's Washington. For these are interests that have benefited from a system which allow ordinary Americans to be exploited. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt in Los Angeles today. I'm at NPR West. Today is Monday, June 22nd, 2009, and that was our president. You just heard at the top of the podcast, President Barack Obama speaking during his weekly address. Our Planet Money indicator today comes from the World Bank. The number is 2.9%. It is the amount the global economy is expected to contract in 2009. So we're talking about global GDP here, which is a measure of the total economic activity on the planet. And it's projected to shrink by 2.9%. That number is a little worse than the World Bank's previous estimate. But if you don't like that number, David, you can go around the corner to the optimists at the International Monetary Fund. They are only predicting a 1.3% contraction. So I called the IMF and I called the World Bank to try and understand the difference. Uh, And neither of them got back to us in time for the podcast. But I emailed Ken Rogoff at Harvard, who was the chief economist at the IMF. And he said, actually, those numbers are not really so different, so far apart, because they use different methods that to figure out how to add up the contributions from the various countries. And so uh, they're actually pretty similar if you compare apples to apples. I I think the take-home message here is that this year is going to be rough, maybe a little more rough than we thought a few months ago. But I should point out that both the IMF and the World Bank do predict the global economy will grow next year by 2%, maybe more. Okay. So, David, it's Monday. I know what you're all thinking. You must all be thinking, waking up in the morning and wondering... Where is the draft of the regulatory reform legislation? Well, I'm told the Obama administration might release it this week. So last week we got uh, speeches, we got an outline. We are still waiting for the actual draft of the legislation. And I have a filing cabinet drawer ready for it. And the drawer is labeled important, but not for nighttime reading. (laughs) So we, we here at Planet Money, we love documents, but we love people more. And last week, I went to try and find some people at the Office of Thrift Supervision. As you may remember, the Obama administration's plan for financial reform calls for eliminating the Office of Thrift Supervision. And a little reminder, the OTS, it was the regulator that had responsibility for AIG and Countrywide and IndyMac, a bunch of big players that got into trouble in this crisis. And um, the OTS observers say it was just not up to the job. It didn't have the right attitude. There's this famous photo from a few years ago where the head of the OTS is posing with a bunch of other regulators, and they have this stack of regulatory paperwork, and all the other regulators are holding garden shears to cut through red tape, and the OTS guy has a chainsaw. So last week, the morning after the news broke that the Obama administration wanted to close the Office of Thrift Supervision, I went over there, and I stood outside the building, and I tried to interview employees as they arrived. And... I have to say, as a reporter, I re- I hate doing this because everyone looks at you like you're some kind of freak. Thanks. Yeah, it's not Hi, I'm with National Public Radio. Do you work for OTS? We're just trying to collect people's thoughts on the way to work today. Y- yeah, I do. Okay. Um, had, had, when did you find out about the closing? Oh, actually, I'm not. Hi, I'm a reporter with National Public Radio. Do you have any work for the Office of Thrift Supervision? No, I'm sorry, okay. I don't. 
Hi, I'm a reporter with National Public Radio. Do you happen to work for the Office of Thrift Supervision? Sorry, no comment. You can't can't talk? (laughs) David, I've been there, man. (laughs) I did find this one woman who was willing to talk. Unfortunately, she didn't really have the kind of information I was hoping for. Hi, excuse me, I'm with National Public Radio. Do you happen to work for the Office of Thrift Supervision? Yeah. How do you feel? Fine. Are people worried about their jobs? I don't think so. When did you guys actually find out? Find out what? Oh, that, that the Obama administration wants to get wants to merge or do it. I haven't a, heard that yet. Oh, okay. It was just announced last night. So, Hannah, I wasn't getting anywhere, and it was about 9 a.m., so I turned off my recorder, and I was getting ready to come back to the office. And then this man comes up to me, and he sees my microphone, and he says, Hello. He says, Can I, can I help you? And it turns out he is the head of public relations for the Office of Thrift Supervision. So we went into the lobby and we did this brief interview. Just uh, start with name and title. William Ruberry, Office of Thrift Supervision spokesman. And what do you just have general reaction to the uh, decision to merge or shut down the Office of Thrift Supervision? Well, at this point, uh, there is no decision. It's a proposal from the administration. Um, and my understanding of the proposal is that uh, under this proposal, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency would be eliminated, the Office of Thrift Supervision would be eliminated, and the two agencies would be combined into a new um, federal bank supervisor. And um, people worried about their jobs here? What's the mood like? Um, I think it's probably too early to be to be concerned. I don't think that there are any calls out there for less regulation of the federal uh, banking system or the banking system in general. Um, I think people are used to proposals. There have been many proposals in the past over the years. And uh, we'll just have to wait and see what the final proposal is. Um, as far as I know, there's no, um, um, no, no concern for anybody to have at this point. And um, I think anyone who wants to uh, continue to be working in the federal uh, bank supervision area, there'll be plenty of jobs out there for them. But what's it been like working here with all the criticism? Well, uh, the agency has received a lot of criticism, I think in in large part because our um, industry focuses um, on home mortgages and other consumer retail lending. By law, they have to have 65% of their assets in home mortgages and other consumer retail lending. And this economic crisis has started in the home mortgage market. And um, so it's, it's not surprising that there would be a disproportionate impact on our, um, on our institutions. Um, so there, there has been a lot of criticism, our view, and also the failures. We've had some uh, large bank failures. Our view is that the um, largest banks to fail weren't supervised by the OTS. The largest banks that were allowed to fail were supervised by the OTS. So much larger institutions ran into serious problems and were prevented from failure by the federal government intervention. I see. So there, were, there would have been a, a longer, larger list of failures that would have not have OTS's name on them had the government let them fail. Institutions such as Citigroup and Bank of America that are not supervised by the OTS um, were prevented from failure by government intervention, and they're much larger than Washington Mutual, which is the largest OTS-regulated institution that has, uh, has failed. What about the argument that people chose OTS, you know, regulatory shopping, because they thought they were the most lax, easy regulator around? Well, the example that we hear for that is countrywide bank moving to OTS supervision in March of 2007. I think there are two important points there. One is that when we talk about the controversial loans that have been made by lending by lenders, including Countrywide, most of that lending occurred before March 2007. Um, the other important point is that although Countrywide moved to OTS supervision because it was primarily a home mortgage lender, um, Citigroup moved two charters 
um, from the OTS to the OCC, away from our agency to a, to the national bank regulator, um, the value of those assets was more than twice what the countrywide was. So really charter conversions have gone in both directions, and really institutions choose the, the charter that best fits their business model. What about AIG? It wasn't really a thrift, though, right? AIG owned a thrift, um, owned a small thrift, and AIG... Um, was under OTS supervision uh, on a consolidated basis, although the, um, all of the functional regulators, the insurance regulators, continued to monitor the insurance part of the business, which was the largest by far part of AIG. Um, the part that got a, of the business that got AIG into trouble, um, the derivatives, the um, credit default swaps was an unregulated product, and that was a decision that was made long ago by Congress that that would not be regulated. Is it true, though, in theory you could have done something about that? the OTS could have? The OTS had authority. It had uh, it had limited authority, but it did have authority. We alerted um, the management of AIG to the risks. Um, and um, by the time the OTS became the consolidated supervisor of AIG, the credit default swap business um, ended shortly thereafter. Unfortunately, that risk was already on the books by the time we became the consolidated supervisor. So the OTS did send out an email to its staff last week after the annoying NPR reporter stopped lurking around out front. Um, and we have that email posted on our blog, npr.org money. And there's also one there from the acting director, Scott Polikoff. He was the acting director until he was placed on leave in March. And his email explains that he is retiring to pursue opportunities in the private sector. So that's on our blog. And we we also got a lot of really thoughtful comments from you on the blog about a podcast we did where we mentioned that economists in general think that tariffs are bad. So some of you wrote in saying, are they really so bad? Don't they make sense in some situations? So we're going to follow up on that now. And this was, Hannah, in this podcast, you'd gone to the port out in Seattle and you talked with the guys there whose job it is to determine the duty rates for things that are imported into the country. Right. So everything that comes in gets taxed. And these guys, they work out of this huge book that they consult for the various duty rates. So they make sure that, say, a car from Korea is getting taxed 4% and the cow from Canada is getting taxed 2% and a toothbrush from China is 12%. I'm just making these numbers up. But basically, it's an incredibly complicated system. And it's spelled out in these huge, huge volumes, these big books that you had the guys throw on the floor to get a sense for how big and, and heavy they were. But we mentioned in the podcast that most economists think that those tariffs are a bad idea. Yes, I think uh, ideally we'd like all tariffs to be zero on all commodities, in which case you wouldn't need a, a, a book at all. So there's your economist. His name is Arvind Subramanian, and he's with the Peterson Institute. So just to recap the argument here. So Subramanian says, Yeah, he doesn't like tariffs because on average, tariffs are bad for countries. They make everything overall more expensive for everyone. And we use this example of a toothbrush. So say there's a toothbrush manufacturer in Ohio, and he sells his toothbrushes for a dollar. But also in China, they make toothbrushes, and the manufacturer there, he makes them and can sell them for 50 cents for less. By imposing a tariff, you what you would do is, let's say, uh, he would otherwise sell it at 50 cents, the Chinese producer, and let's say you slap a tariff of, say, a dollar, and then it would sell in the United States for a dollar 50 cents. Um, so uh, the, the uh, all, all those who buy toothbrushes, which is basically everyone in the U.S., uh, you know, 
assuming that everyone brushes his or her teeth in the morning, uh, <laughs> everyone has to pay a dollar fifty instead of fifty cents. So they'd have to pay three times as much as they would have to, and so they have less purchasing power. They're worse off as a result because they can't buy other things uh, because have having to pay more for toothbrushes. So American consumers are worse off. So a lot of you heard that idea, that argument, and you said. Okay, but let's say one reason Chinese toothbrushes are so cheap is that the Chinese manufacturer treats its workers terribly.、Um, they have to work in unsafe conditions, or the toothbrush factory pollutes. And then you can argue that that's not a level playing field. There are real costs to the environment, say, and those costs don't appear in that fifty-cent toothbrush. Now you've taken、uh, the argument to uh, another uh, dimension, which is that before we were let's say we were talking about a situation based on pure competition, fair competition. The Chinese producer could sell it at fifty cents, and the Ohio manufacturer could sell it, produce it for one dollar. Right?、Uh, then economics just tells us that the most efficient guy should gain the market. So, so that's、uh, the discussion we've been having so far. But now, you, what you've said is that, aha! Wait a minute.、Uh, there is no such thing as you know a, a free market because the ability of the Chinese producer to say produce at fifty cents could be because the Chinese government is doing some things which is、uh, unfair. Let's say, let's take the most extreme example. Right? Supposing、uh, this were produced by prison labor in China. And because you don't have to pay prisoners anything, that's why Chinese producers can sell it at at fifty cents. In that case, I think everyone would agree that's not something that should be allowed because、uh, that ability to sell at fifty cents is based on doing something we all agree should not be done. That's the easy example. But let's go one step further and say, well, let's say, for example, in in China, you don't have the right to unionize. Supposing and say, well, in the U.S., I guess you do have the right to unionize. But let's assume that Chinese workers cannot unionize and American workers can unionize. Supposing the ability to sell at fifty cents is because、uh, you can't form unions, workers' labor unions in China. Is that a source of unfair advantage? Now that's a much more tricky question. Because you get into value systems across countries. Some countries might believe that you know maybe the right to unionize is is not a a, a, a legitimate、um, demand. Other countries might feel it is legitimate. So by implicitly saying that you know we should be allowed to impose a tariff because China's the、uh, the inability of Chinese workers to unionize is somehow unfair, then becomes problematic because then. In turn, China could turn around and say that, "Hey, uh, well, uh, U.S. companies were getting financed very cheaply, or you know, Alan Greenspan was maintaining、uh, a very loose monetary policy. Now that's an unfair advantage. What would you say to that then?" I don't know what I'd say to that, Hana. But you, you can see from that why why we have those huge books listing all the tariffs, and why it is so hard for Congress to try to say lower. Lower the duty rate on sneakers or something. And Supermanian says, you know, in general, though, the trend has been that tariffs they go down. They've just been generally getting smaller and smaller. Slowly, though, yeah. Yeah, very slowly. So we have one final follow-up today, which is on Friday we mentioned that Senator Johnny Isaacson from Georgia got his math wrong when he was talking about the trillion-dollar cost of part of the health care reform effort. If you converted dollars to seconds and you said how many years will it take 
for a trillion seconds to pass. It's 317,097 years, 11 months, and two days. I did the math, and you and Alex read what I thought was the right answer on the podcast Friday. But just to be sure, I called up the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, and I talked with Tom O'Brien, who is the chief of the Time and Frequency Division. And basically, he works with those super precise atomic clocks that only lose a second in something like 100 million years. So I asked him, I said, a trillion seconds, how many years and days would pass? And he says, the answer is that it's impossible to answer that question. He says there are all kinds of strange things going on. For one, the Earth rotation is slowing down due to tidal friction with the moon. Eventually, he says the moon is going to be stuck up in the sky over a single spot on Earth. He says that part is actually predictable, but there's also magma sloshing around inside the Earth. So he can't tell you a trillion seconds from now that it will be a Thursday. He can't even tell you what year it will be. (laughs) You just wanted an opportunity to geek out there, David. Didn't even talk about magma. I <laughs> I love the atomic clock, guys. <laughs> okay. I think our time is up for today. Thank you, as always, for your letters and comments. You can email us at planetmoney at npr.org. We've got those Office of Thrift Supervision emails and an interview with Tom O'Brien about time on our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Hana Jaffe Wolf. Thanks for listening. When I'm a couple hours past and I was sitting in my house, the day was winding down and coming to an end. Oh, yes, we all seek out to satisfy those thrills. You know there ain't.